All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, so we are standing in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton. Here we are, Article 27 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on monastic vows. We are just a few weeks away from being finished with the Apology. And that is a great feat in and of itself as we have looked at it and dug into the text to see what it is that we as Lutherans truly believe, teach, confess. And truly it just gets more in depth from here because this begins the foundation of it. But when we get into the small called articles in a month or so, and then probably next year sometime getting into the formula of Concord, there will be a whole lot more based on this apology and the Augsburg Confession that we need to take into consideration as newer things come up and newer disagreements between Lutherans happen. But right now we're talking about monastic vows and what is a vow and what makes a vow legitimate in the eyes of God. And today we're going to cover the first 20 paragraphs of Article 27. To our knowledge, there was a monk named John Hilton in the Thuringian town of Eisenach. Thirty years ago, he was thrown into prison by his religious order because he had condemned certain scandalous abuses. We have seen his writings, which clearly explain the nature of his doctrine. Those who knew him declare that he was mild in his old age and serious indeed, but not gloomy. He predicted many things, some of which have already happened. Others still seem close at hand, but we do not want to repeat them, lest it may be inferred that they are told either from hatred toward one or from preference toward another. Finally, either because of his age or the foulness of the prison, he became ill. He sent for the guard to tell him of his sickness. Inflamed with Pharisaic hatred, the guard began to rebuke the man harshly because of his kind of doctrine, which seemed to interfere with the work of the kitchen. Without mentioning his sickness, Hilton said that with a sigh that he was patiently bearing these injuries for Christ's sake, since he had neither written nor taught anything that could undermine the monastic life, but it only criticized some well-known abuses. Another one, he said, will come in A.D. 1516. He will destroy you, and you will be unable to resist him. Later, his, found, his friends found this very prediction about the declining influence of the monastic orders and the very date written in his surviving commentaries dealing with certain passages of Daniel. The outcome will show how much emphasis should be given to this declaration, yet there are other signs that can threaten a change in the monk's power, no less certain than oracles. It is clear how much hypocrisy, ambition, and greed there are in the monasteries, how much ignorance and cruelty exist amongst all the unlearned what pride there is in their sermons, and how they continually create new ways of making money. There are other faults, which we do not care to mention. Monasteries were schools for Christian instruction. Now they have deteriorated, as though from a golden to an iron age, or as Plato says, the cube deteriorates into bad harmonies, bringing destruction. All the most wealthy monasteries support only a lazy crowd, which gorges itself upon the public alms of the church. Christ, however, teaches that the salt that has lost its savor should be cast out and trodden underfoot, Matthew 5.13. By such morals, the monks are signing their own fate, a requiem, and it will soon be over with them. Another sign is added, because in many places they are instigators of the death of good men. No doubt God will soon avenge these murders. 
Certainly we do not accuse every one of them, for here and there some good men in the monasteries decide fairly about human and fastidious services, as some writers call them, and do not approve the cruelty exercised by the hypocrites among them. All right, there's the first eight articles. Given a point of order in understanding what is going on. So you have this man named John Hilton. He was given the ability by God to see glimpses of the future, it looks like. And he is not only glimpsing into the future, but looking at what is in the world around him that says, okay, what is wrong with this? How can we fix this? Now, again, this was 30 years before, so this is right around the turn of the century in 1500. And he's already talking about there being issues. So there are well-known issues among the monasteries. And this is one of the things that is why Luther and the rest of the reformers sought to get rid of the monastic order. Because as it says in paragraph 5, it has deteriorated into bad harmonies bringing destruction. A very good platonic statement, although Melanchthon and the other reformers do get on to using Plato as a way of describing and basing our, uh, our theology on, because Plato is not a theologian. Plato is not even Christian. Plato was a philosopher who just tried to find the natural solution to everything without necessarily there being a personal God. But what is this deterioration? What does it look like? Well, paragraph four, we go back to, and by the 16th century, the monasteries were full of hypocrisy, ambition, and greed. Definitely the opposite of the monastery's origins as places of education and spiritual retreat. Now they were the gathering place for lazy gluttons and definitely looking more like an iron age than a golden age. I mean, we're talking even less than bronze here. So it has gone downhill very quickly. And Melanchthon says this as a layman, but Luther was a monk. Several of the other key people in the Lutheran Reformation had been monks at one time. They knew what life was like in the monastery. And those who had come from the monasteries and the convents could tell them stories that made them shiver of what happened in those monasteries and convents. Definitely not what they were set up for. But that's not to say that there are not good monks, that there are not good monasteries. Just like there are good churches, even though everyone has something wrong. And people will be shocked at that statement, but... Yes, there could be things that are wrong in the teaching that we have not quite yet fully understood. But I'm a pastor of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod because I believe that the Missouri Synod is the closest church to perfection on earth. So that is where I sit and stand in their confessional corner to say what I believe, teach, confess, along with the confessions but there is still room for improvement because we're all human. We're all sinners. 
We're not going to get it perfect. But now let's move on into paragraph 9 and 10. Now we are discussing the kind of teaching that the writers of the Confutation defend, not the question of whether vows should be kept. We hold that legitimate vows should be kept. However, we are discussing different questions. Can these services merit the forgiveness of sins and justification? Are they satisfactions for sins? Are they equal to baptism? Are they the obedience to basic rules and counsels? Are they evangelical perfection? Do they have the merits of superabundance? Do these merits, when applied to others, save them? Are vows made with these beliefs legitimate? Are vows legitimate that are made under the appearance of religion merely for the sake of the belly and laziness? Are those true vows that have been forced either from the unwilling or from those who, because of age, were unable to understand this kind of life, whom parents or friends thrust into the monasteries so that they might be supported at public expense without the loss of their private inheritance? Are vows legitimate that openly come to a bad end, either because they are kept, not kept due to weakness or because those in the monastic orders are pushed to approve and help the abuses of the mass, the godless worship of the saints, and the councils attacking good people? We have said many things in the confession about such vows that even the canons of the popes condemn, yet the adversaries command that everything we have produced must be rejected. They have used these words. All right, so it is not a question as to whether vows should be kept. If you have made a vow, you should definitely keep it, regardless of what the issue is that tugs at your heart to be wanting to undo the vow. I think mostly of the Judge Jephthah as he is leading the Israelites out to battle. He vows to God that the first thing that comes out of his door to greet him when he comes home after a successful battle will be sacrificed to the Lord. It's his only daughter that greets him running out the door. And he is heartbroken that his only child would be what he has to now sacrifice. And he tries to find a way out of it. But she says, no, no, you have made a vow to the Lord. Do what it is that you have said. Just give me time to mourn with my friends and help them out, and then we will take care of the vow. Not that the daughter's fulfillment of it makes the vow illegitimate because, well, you know, I meant animal. No, it's the vow was made. You should keep your word, period. Now, if you swear a vow that is rash and harsh, okay, now we have a problem. You've got the 40-plus men who <clears throat> vow not to eat or drink until they have killed Paul. Paul likely lived for another decade. I'm pretty sure they did not keep that vow. But the laundry list of questions that Melanchthon has has that question. What makes a vow legitimate? What makes it a true God-pleasing vow? And gives all kinds of options because many of the monks were dropped off there at the front door of the monastery or the front door of the convent by family saying, okay, we have consecrated them to the Lord. They're your problem now. That was the issue with Katerina von Bora Luther. She had been dropped off by her family because, well, it was one more mouth to feed and they needed to get rid of somebody, so they put her in the convent. Luther expounds on legitimate vows 
in his book on the vows of the monks in November of 1521. So we're almost a decade after this, when the apology is being written, that Melanchthon says, okay, if you want to look at it some more, let's look at that. And that's exactly what he says in the next paragraph as we look at it. It is worthwhile to hear how they distort our reasoning and what they mention to support their own case. So we will briefly review a few of our arguments. In passing, we will explain away the adversary's slick logic in reference to them. However, this entire case has been carefully and fully discussed by Luther in his book On the Vows of the Monks. We wish to be seen as repeating that case here. First, it is very clear that a vow is illegitimate if the person who makes the vow thinks that the forgiveness of sins before God is merited by it or satisfaction is made before God for sins. This opinion clearly insults the gospel, which teaches that the forgiveness of sins is freely granted to us for Christ's sake, as has been said at some length before. Therefore, we have quoted correctly Paul's declaration to the Galatians, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace, in chapter 5, verse 4. Those who seek the forgiveness of sins, not through faith in Christ, but through monastic works, divert people from Christ's honor and crucify Christ again. Listen, listen how the, the writers of the Confutation look for a way out. They explain this passage of Paul only in relation to Moses' law, and they add that the monks obey all things for Christ's sake. They try hard to live nearer to the gospel in order to merit eternal life. They add a horrible conclusion in these words. Therefore, those things are wicked that are here alleged against monasticism. O Christ, how long will you bear these accusations with which our enemies pre present your gospel? In the confession, we said that the forgiveness of sins is received freely for Christ's sake through faith. O Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, you revealed the gospel to the world. If our teaching is not the very voice of the gospel, if it is not the eternal Father's judgment, we are rightly blamed. But your death is a witness. Your resurrection is a witness. The Holy Spirit is a witness. Your entire church is a witness of this. The true meaning of the gospel is that we receive forgiveness of sins, not because of our merits, but because of you through faith. Plain and simple, if you believe that you're going to receive forgiveness of sins because you keep this vow, whether it's poverty, chastity, silence, you know, those are the three main ones. But if you think you're going to get forgiveness of sins from these things, that makes it automatically illegitimate because you're doing these things, which could be noble things, for the wrong reasons. And that makes it an illegitimate vow. We move on into... Paragraph 14, when Paul denies that by Moses' law people merit the forgiveness of sins, he withdraws this praise much more from human traditions. He clearly presents this in Colossians 2.16. If Moses' law, which was divinely revealed, did not merit the forgiveness of sins, how much less do these silly observances, hostile to the civil customs of life, merit the forgiveness of sins? Melanchthon makes a very good point here. If Moses' law, given to him by God, on Mount Sinai, does not give the forgiveness of sins. How can what color cloak you wear as a monk, or how rough the fabric is, or whether you eat meat on Fridays, or you keep a vow of silence, or chastity, or celibacy, or whatever it is that you come up with, how can that give forgiveness of sins if God's law through Moses could not? And, of course, 
Paul goes into that in Colossians talking about it is not that the law was bad, that the law was imperfect, because the law is perfect. It's because of our flesh. Our flesh is imperfect. Therefore, we cannot keep the law. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. All right, we go on into paragraphs 15 and 16 now. The adversaries wrongly claim that Paul abolishes Moses' law and that Christ follows in such a way that he does not freely grant the forgiveness of sins, but forgives because of the works of other laws, if any are now created. By this godless and fanatical imagination, they bury Christ's benefit. They wrongly claim that among those who obey this law of Christ, the monks will be better than others because of their hypocritical poverty, obedience, and chastity, since indeed all these things are full of sham. They brag about poverty most of all. No class of men has greater license than the monks. They boast of obedience. We do not like to speak about celibacy. Gerson indicates how pure this is in most of those who desire to be sexually pure. How many of them do desire to be chaste? Rome demands, and still does today, that you believe that Jesus is not a Savior, but a second lawgiver. That he gives us a law that is maybe better than Moses, or easier to keep than Moses. But then they say, well, only the monks and the nuns really do a good job of that. And that's because of all the extra vows that they put on top of it. And you see just how much doubt and shadow they cast over everything by trying to take away the free forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ alone. All right, we're going to finish up paragraph 17 through 20. Of course, in this sham life, the monks live more closely according to the gospel. Christ does not follow Moses in such a way as to forgive sins because of our works, but to set his own merits and his own atoning sacrifice against God's wrath for us, so that we may be freely forgiven. Now, apart from Christ's atoning sacrifice, whoever applies his own merits to God's wrath and tries to receive the forgiveness of sins because of his own merits, whether the works of Moses' law, or of the Ten Commandments, or the rule of Benedict, or the rule of Augustine, or of the rules, does away with Christ's promise, has cast away Christ, and has fallen from grace. This is Paul's verdict, and we'll see that more fully in just a moment. Look, most gracious, merciful Emperor Charles. Look, you princes. Look, all you ranks. How great is the impudence of the adversaries. Although we have quoted Paul's declaration to this effect, they have written, Wicked are those things that are here cited against monasticism. What is more certain than that men receive the forgiveness of sins through faith for Christ's sake? And these wretches dare to call this a wicked belief. We do not doubt that if you had advised about this passage, you would have taken care that such blasphemy be removed from the confutation. It has been fully shown above that this belief is wicked. We receive the forgiveness of sins because of our works. Therefore, we shall be briefer here, for the level-headed reader will easily determine that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins by monastic works. Therefore, this blasphemy, which appears in Thomas, also cannot be tolerated. The monastic profession is equal to baptism. It is insane to make human tradition, which has neither God's command nor promise, equal to Christ's ordinance. Baptism has both God's command and promise, which contains the covenant of grace and of eternal life. Monastic vows do not. All right, so Paul's verdict in all of this comes to us from Galatians 5, particularly verses 1 through 5, where 
Paul points out our freedom, not because of our works, not because we keep the law, but because of Christ. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. Paul says it very clearly. For freedom, we have been set free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ is not another lawgiver. Christ does not want you to have to fulfill the law of Moses first and then be saved by him. Christ saves you through his death and resurrection. He is the one who kept the entire law. His works are given to you in your baptism, in the words of absolution, in the body and blood of along with the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. This is where forgiveness can be found, not in how well you keep the law of Moses. Because, well, I would be horrible at trying to keep the law of Moses. Because I like a bacon cheeseburger, and that is a definite no-no in the law of Moses. But that's a whole different story for a different time. And maybe we'll talk about that sometime with the distinction of meats and foods and that things. But until then, this is Pastor Dugman thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me today. Asking you to come back Thursday as we dig deeper into the Psalms. Be here for Pro Wrestling America, the weekly sermons from our Savior Lutheran Church here in Milford, as well as the moments of meditation as they are available to help to strengthen you, especially as we look in these times of what makes a vow legitimate, what makes a perfect Christian life. Well, I'll give you a little spoiler here. The perfect Christian life is the one that says, like the Father to Jesus, after he and Peter, James, and John came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, saying, if you can do these things. And when rebuked by Jesus about the word if, says, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the true Christian life. Lord, help me to know what it is that you have. Because I don't know yet, but I'm still working on trying to better understand. And that better understanding helps us to wrestle with all the theologies around us, which is what this podcast is here for, to help you wrestle with the theologies. Amen.